Welcome to Near and Far, the World Catholicism Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Cavanaugh, Director of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University in Chicago. Welcome to Near and Far. My name is Michael Buddy, Senior Research Scholar in the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University. We receive a lot of research proposals from a lot of interesting scholars, but we don't often get one that starts off like this. On April 30, 1997, in the middle of Burundi's 1993-2004 Civil War, Buta Minor Seminary was attacked at dawn by a large armed force. Ordered at gunpoint to separate by ethnicity, students in the senior dormitory chose instead to join hands and affirm their common identity as children of God. Over the next four hours, they felt a gunfire and a grenade. During this chaotic ass assault, as attackers moved in and out of the dormitory, able-bodied students bound the wounds of their injured classmates, carried them to safety, and listened to their final words. Dying students chanted psalms, prayed the rosary, and made peace with God and their classmates. Several were heard asking God to forgive their assailants. By the end, 40 students were dead and 26 others seriously wounded. In the senior dormitory, bodies floated in blood. Yet by the time of the students' funeral mass two days later, their solidarity had begun to turn the massacre into a triumph, a poignant victory of fraternal love over the ethnic manipulation of the Civil War. The proposal we received came from a scholar who has become one of the most significant interpreters and experts on this remarkable experience. As the world continues to devour itself in the name of ethnic and national domination, aggression, and revenge, a group of young boys in a place most of the world has never heard of did something noble, heroic, and potentially transformative. They said no to the conventional wisdom of their time and every time. Save yourself. Put your group over the other group. Family and kinfolk deserve your ultimate loyalty. They said yes to the gospel vision of a new community, defined not by blood or clan or nation, but by dedication to the risen Christ who restores human unity based on love, not violence, service, not domination. Joining me today to talk about this remarkable group of young boys in East Central Africa and how they subverted all the conventional wisdom of their time and our time is Jody Mikulachki, a professor of literature at the University of Burundi in the capital city of Bujumbura. Originally from Canada, Professor Mikulachki built a successful scholarly career in North America before moving to East Africa, where she, where she has taught, studied, and written extensively on issues ranging from contemporary African fiction to theology and the dynamics of culture and power. She has translated several of the, several, several of the central accounts of the Buddha martyrs, most notably Father Zachary Bukuru's We Are All Children of God, the story of the 40 young martyrs of Buddha, a first-person account of the massacre and a probable aftermath written by the priest whose seminary the boys attended. Jody joins me from Chicago, where she can continues her research on the Buddha martyrs as a research fellow at the Center for World Catholicism. Welcome, Jody. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. Quite a remarkable story and a quite a remarkable legacy that you've become part of over the last several years. Um, how did you find your way into this? Well, yes, what uh, what a grace-filled story I did find my way into. 
I went to Burundi in 2008 as a service worker with the Mennonite Central Committee and uh, to go to uh, live in a rural area and work with uh, a school for Twas, a very marginalized group. There are Hutus, Tutsis, and Twas in Burundi and a group that doesn't often attend school. And um, before I went, I got the placement uh, shortly before I went. The one book I had read was Zachary Bukuru's book on the 40 Martyrs of Buddha, uh, which was in French, and somebody lent it to me. And that story stayed in me for the three years that I was serving more in the north of Burundi, and this story took place in the south. Um, you know, I didn't have a car. I, I was pretty focused in the area I lived in and then would go down to what was the capital at the time, Bujumbura, and back up. So I'd been in Burundi for over three years before I actually went to Buta and met Father Zachary. And at that point, it seemed to me the most significant thing I could do for them would be to translate his book into English. So I did that. And it was published by Paulines in 2015. Um, I lived in Burundi for six years, went to Kenya for three years, and when I came back to Burundi and started doing research on Burundian literature, I, I began to be interested in knowing more also about this event at Bhutan. Contemporary Burundian literature is all about the cycles of violence that Burundi has been through since independence in 1962. And it seemed to me that the Buddha story, although not a literary text, was its own uh, narrative. And so I began interviewing people, um, initially people that Father Zachary asked if they would be willing to talk to me. And, you know, Burundi is a country in which is a very much face-to-face -face country. And um, people agree to meet with you because someone they trust has asked if they would. And then over time, they would start sending other people to me. I got to know the Survivors Association. The cause for the Martyrs of Fraternity of Burundi has been opened in Rome. And when the official investigative process was held in 2019, I was invited to testify as what's called a witness to the renown of the Martyrs of Fraternity. And then after I testified, some of the priests who had been on that commission started sending me more people. So at this point, I've had it, conducted at least 50 interviews with survivors, parents of martyrs, uh, Bhutan neighbors, Catholic church personnel, and other intellectuals in Burundi to try to get a sense of how they understand what happened there, which was so terrible, as one of the survivors says, it marks absolutely the worst that human beings are capable of. And then also this self-offering, this stripping of self, the willingness to die for your beloved friends and brothers, in this case, because they were all boys. We can say brothers, although the term fraternity in Burundi is gender neutral, umuvukano which means people who were born together, born of the same family. Um, and I do think it would be a great thing if the church would adopt it. You know, Francis' encyclical is beautiful, encyclical Fratelli Tutti on fraternity and social friendship is still gendered. Um, 
And I think it would be wonderful for the church to have this ideal and this virtue of fraternity enshrined in a gender neutral term. And since we do have emerging saints of fraternity, why not use umu vulcano, um, which is both people who are related by blood, but then is more broadly uh, people who enter into this loving relationship with one another that goes beyond blood ties and unites neighbors and communities and eventually a nation and in France's aspiration, the whole world. Um, uh, a fraternal relationship and social friendship that excludes no one. That's one of the terms that you explore along with several others to good effect in an important piece you published recently in the Journal of Global Catholicism, which not only gathers together stories of the events of the martyrs, but also the reception of their witness and some of the struggles and, and challenges of trying to, trying to sift through competing versions of truth, competing uses of an exemplar, an exemplary case like this. The context is important and for people who aren't familiar with that region. You offer a, a, a remarkably succinct summary of the politics of that era at one point where you write, quote, Burundi's 1993 to 2005 civil war was thus complex, initially pitting a democratically elected government against its own armed forces. It quickly degenerated into inter-ethnic violence perpetrated by and visited upon Burundians of all identities and affiliations, eventually involving more than 20 political movements. Although the war was officially waged between armed Hutu political forces and the Tutsi-dominated regular army, civilians were its principal targets. The 1998 Human Rights Watch report noted that, quote, in practice, the contenders fight few direct battles and instead carry on combat indirectly through attacks on civilians. It's hard to it's hard to construct a con a context like that in advance, where there are so many rival factions and so many competing agendas, and the players are shifting so so rapidly. Um, and yet, so much of this coalesced in this one time in this one place, where unfortunately, young boys thinking about a life of service found themselves gathered together. They themselves coming from a, a variety of backgrounds, Tutsi families, Hutsu families. Um, as you as you've worked through all these stories and you've met the survivors, can can you even begin to sketch some of what went on for them there? Well, and I think that story begins really with um, the assassination of President Melchior Ndadaye in October of 1993, who is Burundi's first civilian president, first Hutu president, who had won an overwhelming democratic, he, both he and his party had very clearly won elections uh, that were free and fair. Uh, highly, um, well, there was a lot of inflammatory rhetoric around them. Um, they were tense elections, um, but but this was a, a good vote count. And um, at that point, 
as word got out that he had been assassinated by the army, you know, the president who was also, as, as in this country, the chief of the army, um, and his successors. They, you know, they say that whoever killed him had a gun in one hand and the constitution in the other. They were destroying a government. Uh, people in Burundi began killing each other in the countryside, in the cities. Um, Hutus killing Tutsis, Tutsis killing Hutus, and then there would be these reprisals all over the place. At Buta, it so happened that as this news burst out on government-dominated media, um, Zachary Bukuru, the rector of the seminary, was the only priest who was there. The bursar was off on business and another priest was doing something. So he was pretty much alone with the boys and held a big meeting and they would meet regularly in the evenings, just him with the boys. And he said these were very stormy meetings and they all had very strong opinions about what was happening. Many of their opinions based on the 1972 genocide, which was um, after an initial uprising of Hutus with about 800 to 1,200 Tutsis killed and terribly killed in the region where Bute is. Um, there were massive reprisals by the army, which can't even really be called reprisals because they went on all over the country. They executed a genocide that was targeting males and educated males, including boys from seventh grade up. So this is all in the minds of these boys. And of course, they wanted to leave. They wanted to go to their families. They were afraid to stay in the school. Um, and uh, Zachary and his collaborators managed to keep them at Buta, afraid that they would get recruited into armed movements if they went home or just shot on the way. Um, and aware of what a polemical environment was out there. And in the three and a half years before the attack on Buta, they developed what they called a culture of peace. And that was through a lot of shared activities, some sporting. As Burundi got under an embargo, they also were raising more and more of their own food and doing that work together. And then cultural activities, including traditional dance that brought them together non-verbally. Um, and the dances in Burundi are not any particular ethnicities dance. They're more regional dances. So at the time that the attack took place, you have a group of students who have been involved in this, who have been learning how to have dialogue. One of the rules in these stormy evening meetings was that if you used what we would call hate speech, they didn't have that language for it, but if you spoke uh, in a hateful way about someone in terms of their ethnicity or their region or their clan or whatever it was, you had to leave the room. And when you came back, you had to apologize to the whole assembly not just the person that you had said this to or their group, because you had offended the whole assembly. And they managed to, to keep this going and to stay together. Um, so at the time of the attack, you have boys who have been living in this environment and learning in it. Um, the boys in the junior dormitory um, were not cornered as the boys in the senior dormitory were. So they began escaping all the dormitories around the second floor, jumping, eventually making ropes out of bed sheets. And 
there was an anti-aircraft gun firing on the seminary from a hill above it. And when they saw that the boys were escaping from the junior dormitory, they began firing on it and eventually set the roof on fire. But in the senior dormitory, they didn't fire on it because they knew their accomplices were in there. And that's where they were trying. They were repeatedly insisting that the boys self-identify as Hutus or Tutsis and go to different spaces in the room. Several times they asked them, well, they didn't ask them, they ordered them to do that. And the boys refused every time. Um, the attackers had entered shooting, so some boys were killed immediately and others were too injured to move. Uh, but most of them had hidden on beds, under beds at the far end of the dorm. They were called to come out. They instinctively joined hands with one another under the beds. Um, Eventually, they were threatened that they would be chopped up with machetes if they didn't come out. So they finally did, those who could walk, and went and stood together against the wall. Um, and there's one of the survivors, Nicolania Venda, who's now a priest and a professor of philosophy in Bujumbura at the major seminary there. He, one of the attackers, the woman leading the attack, I guess in looking at him, thought he must be a Hutu. And the attacking group were Hutus. And it seems, we think, that what they wanted to do was to recruit the Hutus so that they could go for officer training because they would have enough education and kill the Tutsis. So she started slapping Nicola around and saying, you know, come on, you're a Hutu, you know that. So he said, finally, to get rid of her, he just said, yeah, I'm a Hutu and my money's in my pants pocket over there, which was a complete fabrication. And then he went and stood with the others against the wall. So they stayed together over and over again. Um, and this seems to be even immediately after the attack, one of the boys came out of the senior dormitory and said to the rector, Father, they tried to separate us, but we refused. It's a remarkable statement. I mean, this attack went on for four and a half hours. The attackers would move in and out of the dorm. They were drunk, probably high as well. It was a very chaotic scene. When they would leave the dorm, I mean, all the boys were playing dead when they were there. When they would leave, the ones who could move around would be trying to help the others or carry them out of the dorm and hide them in the outdoor toilets and then come back to help others. So as more and more boys bled out on the floor, apparently there became a lake of blood. Survivors all talk about this lake of blood and bodies were floating in it. So here is this boy, Steny Miyazongitsa, after four and a half hours of this, with dozens of his schoolmates dead or injured, floating in blood. And the first thing he wants to say to his rector is, Father, they tried to separate us, but we refused. It's an extraordinary testimony. There's no, there's no parallel case for that. I mean, that's just the, the fruit of the efforts to try to prepare and form consciences, form identities about who and to whom one belongs. I mean, just, I've heard that story so many times and it, it, it never fails to just, just bring silence. Yes, and I think 
The story also tells us that they knew what they were doing, the boys, right while they were doing it. This is not a story that got invented later. They were telling it from the moment of the attack. And, uh, you know, because it was still the middle of the Civil War, many people tried to use this story and the witness for partisan purposes. And the boys were in a difficult situation because they were technically children and in a society in which children don't contradict their elders and need to be asked, given permission to speak at adult occasions. And, and of course, they had also, they were traumatized, they were physically injured. Uh, as one of the survivors uh, said to me, uh, he said, you know, after the attack, we were still fragile, handicapped, young. And people would try to take advantage of our commemorations because they would hold commemorations on the 30th of every month because that's the day of the attack. And then they would have a big one on April 30th every year. And people would come with political placards and uh, relatives of the students who had been killed would stand up to make political speeches. There are people, and it's, it still goes on. I mean, I have a young colleague in Burundi who, when he heard I was working on this, said to me, the thing you need to know about Buta is they went there to kill Tutsis. There are other people who will say, well, you know, I think the real heroes of that massacre are the Hutus because they could have identified themselves and not been killed. And the survivors are so clear that this is not their message. Neither of those things is their message. It's not about Hutu savages killing Tutsi schoolboys, and it's not about heroic Hutus um, deciding to stay with their Tutsi brothers. This story is they stayed together, all of them together. They gave a single testimony, and they are buried together, those boys. And yet 25 years later, the legacy is still contested. It's yes. still politically volatile or politically advantageous to be co-opted or to manage one way or another. What kind of toll has that taken on the survivors and their families to, to, to have, through no fault of their own, found themselves in the middle of, of agendas and factions of, over which they have no control, even now as they have become adults? I think... It both takes a toll and it contributes to their continuing unity. So um, the survivors talk about they, when they gathered for the first anniversary of the martyrdom, of the attack. Um, in Burundi, when someone dies, there's a funeral, and then eight days later, there's what's called the partial lifting of mourning, which is what releases immediate family to go back to work. Um, and usually about a year later, they hold the definitive lifting of mourning. And it's a very important cultural moment. In between times, all kinds of things are supposed to get settled. If the deceased owed any money, if there were outside children who might be claiming an inheritance, all of that. And once you get to the definitive lifting of mourning, the business is done. So when they came back for what we would think of as the first anniversary mass, the first commemoration, 
It was also this definitive lifting of mourning. And that's when they formed the Survivors Association, which was initially just called the Association of the Survivors of Buta. And this is when they were still fragile, handicapped, young. One of the founders of that society, Nepo Bironghua, who's now a journalist, arrived on crutches. He'd just gotten out of the hospital a year later. And um, he and others have talked about it was very difficult for them. There were boys that didn't want to form a survivor's association. They, you know, some came from political families. People, I mean, it was still a civil war. Their families were taking up strong positions. So the decision of the survivors to continue to stay together, for me, I call it the long martyrdom. Because um, they suffered many indignities. I mean, they would go to commemorations and church personnel would not allow them to speak. I mean, this was not every time, but sometimes, right? Um, and this man, Nepo Bironqua, said, you know, that was like reliving the massacre for us. This is a strong statement. This is a guy who was wounded so badly that he spent a year in the hospital afterwards. He still limps. He's talked to me about um, when his eldest son was about three or four years old. That's when he began to notice, you know, why does Papa walk like that? And uh, once they were out with um, some priests and somebody was saying, you know, this is Nepopironko, he's one of the survivors of Buta. You can see he was shot in the leg. And as in all societies, we forget that, you know, little pitchers have big ears. So when they got home, his son, who was three or four, made a beeline for his mother and said, do you know that Papa was shot in the leg? And so Nepo says, you know, what do I tell him? I don't want to start talking to him about Hutus and Tutsis. He's just starting nursery school. I don't want to tell him I was shot at school. So there's this aspect. But there's also the aspect of staying together, Hutus and Tutsis together. And Nebo has talked about how the fact that they stayed together and they kept talking about what happened and they got out their anger and their frustration and their, their trauma, I would say, by continuing to talk it through. That's what allowed them to stay together and to begin to heal. As far as they know, they are the only multi-ethnic survivors group in Burundi. Just the nature of, you know, a war like that. All the other groups are monoethnic. So they have a real advantage in what they can testify to as survivors. And they continue to be friends. And those who have married, you know, their spouses are friends. Their kids get to know each other. Um, some are priests and carrying on in the church the legacy of this work of reconciliation. The Survivors Association refounded itself in 2009 as a peace and reconciliation organization called Light of the World Buddha Association, and it is open to all members. You don't need to be a survivor to join it. So they say, you know, we can have women now, we can have people who graduated from Buddha later or earlier who want to join us or anybody else who shares our values. And they have been working alongside the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Burundi uh, for gathering testimonies and 
they've done a lot of transitional justice work of going out and sharing their their witness, their light, as they say, which is the light of reconciliation and of umuvukano, that we are all born together. We are all children of God. Uh, this is the message that they take out. And they speak with authority as they limp to the stage or stand with an arm that is somewhat deformed or talk to you about the bullet that's still in their knee and the shrapnel in their back. They speak with a kind of authority that to me is similar to that of the boys who died and their spiritual authority. So this location has become a, a site of pilgrimage, as I understand mm -hmm. it. Yes. Drawing people not just from Burundi, but from around the, around the world. It's, it's testifying not only to the past, but to the very real presence, present that the survivors and their, and their, their like-minded people have decided to make a witness. Um, how does the how does the government uh, deal with this? Given the government's uh, legacy, and I guess in this case, yeah. So this is really um, this story lives in the church in Burundi rather than in the state. So and in the Catholic Church, it's Catholic minor seminary. Um, Catholic Church is very strong in Burundi. About 63% of Burundians are Catholics. You know. um, and I, so the church holds commemorative masses. Um, the minor seminary, wonderfully, um, you know, they continue to sleep in those same dorms. The bullet holes against the wall where they were killed have never been filled in. Boys are sleeping with their heads or feet against those. Um, each class at the seminary has been given a martyr, specific martyr among the 40. And we're 25 years out now, so they haven't made it through all the martyrs yet, but I guess they'll start again when they have. And the boys that are currently at the seminary take it in turns every Saturday to go and pick flowers and make wreaths and decorate the graves. It's very moving to see them doing that. There are um, none of the prohibitions of our culture on boys holding hands or putting their arms around each other. So you see these teenage boys picking flowers and making sometimes very aesthetically lovely arrangements, um, holding hands, walking around, decorating graves of their you know, older brothers, figuratively, uh, who gave their lives for love of one another. The church keeps that going. In terms of the state, there's no state recognition. Um, at the 20th anniversary, the governor of that province did attend and did make a speech, um, but none of the higher-ups in government have been there. I think I might want to share a story. You know, civil war, I would say violence in Burundi is very intimate. And it's a small country. It's approaching 12 million in population, would have been smaller then. Um, one of the martyrs, Pacific Kanedzere, is from Buta itself, maybe 500 yards up the road. And 
his father, Gaspar Nzeimana, uh, who's a veterinarian, was the, the head of the zone that they were in at the time. And, and they're a Hutu family. And Gaspar's older brother had been so traumatized by the 1972 genocide that he lost his mind. He, he was a teacher and he fled from where all the educated Hutu men were being killed and came back and all he could say was, they're all dead, they're all killed, they're all dead. So, which is so different from standing in his own kids and saying, Father, they tried to separate us, but we refused. So one of the attackers on the seminary is also from Bhutta. And he rose up through the ranks in the force that attacked Bhutta and eventually uh, became a general. And after the Civil War, uh, when the, the armed Hutu movements were integrated into the Tutsi-dominated army and police, uh, he ended up a general in the Burundian army. And from time to time, he would come back to Bhutta with his entourage, visit his family, and go out for a drink. So one evening, Gaspar Nzeimana was going out for a drink, and he was in one of the cabarets, and in walks this man, his nickname is Kiroho, this general with his entourage. And they look at each other, both men freeze, right? And then Kiroho walks up to Gaspar, father of one of the martyrs, and embraces him. Holds him chest to chest. And Gaspar said, my heart was beating like this and I could feel his heart beating against mine. And they stood like that for a long time. These men are both Hutus. I'm certainly both had lost family and been traumatized in the 72 genocide. And then... One of them was part of a group that killed the son of the other. So as they separated, the general said to the owner of the cabaret, anything the old man drinks, I pay for. And then he walked out with his entourage and went to drink somewhere else. So then the owner of the cabaret came up to Gaspar and said, so what do you have? And Gaspar said, well, I, um, I came out for a drink and I have money in my pocket. And the guy said, oh, come on, you know, he wants to stand you to drinks. And he said, do you think I can drink out of his pocket? So, of course, the owner of the cabaret is in a terrible position. He said well, something to the effect of, oh, you know, that was all a long time ago. And he managed to persuade Gaspar to take one beer. And Gaspar said, I tried to drink from it. I had to spit it out. I just couldn't do it. And I left. Then... Kiroho came back at the end of the evening to say, so how many cases did the old man drink? And the cabaret owner said, well, it's just one, one beer. And Kiroho said, what, that's it? You pay for it. Now, Gaspar has told me that on numerous occasions, he has tried to invite Kiroho to come to the sanctuary. And Kiroho has said, do you think I can set foot in there? Oh, it's worth noticing, noting this man was involved in the failed coup against uh, President Kurunzidze in 2015 when Burundi went through another turbulent period and was jailed. And all his property has been seized and he's in a jail in Gitega. Um, and some of the survivors have said, you should go interview him. I said, yeah, let's go together. Uh, <laughs> but this is to tell you how intimate these yes. stories are. Yeah. This is not at arm's, arm's length. 
this is, no. this is people who have known each other for a long time. And who have shared wounds. Yes. It matters that we're talking, at least among the learners, it matters that we're talking about boys. Yes. It matters that we're talking about young men and their role in society, the expectations and the assumptions about that. You make reference at one point as uh, the the witness of the martyrs testifying to what you call nonviolent masculinity rooted in fraternal love. Mm-hmm. I think that deserves a book by itself. Can you reflect more on what you what you mean by that and how that contrasts with the, the culture with, with, within which the boys operated? Yes, thank you for that question. The um, As I think happens generally in situations like the Civil War in Burundi, um, Boys, youth, young men are recruited into violence. And it happens in our own society. We know this in our our own um, communities that are under pressure that don't have the resources that they need. So uh, boys, including boys that are really prepubescent children, are being recruited into armed forces. All the boys graduating from the seminar went to do a year of military service. Um, so they would be in the Tutsi-dominated army, whatever their ethnicity, fighting against armed Hutu movements that they might have agreed with. Um, and it's pretty clear that recruitment was one of the reasons that this force attacked Buta Minor Seminary. Um, so what we have here is instead of responding to violence by becoming violent, These boys, as taught at the seminary, as taught by the church, as taught by their families, loved one another. And this is what, when you interview, especially the parents of the martyrs, which are very uh, poignant interviews for me, um, the mothers in particular, their testimony is universal. The boys loved one another. They didn't want to separate. They loved one another. Umubukano, this word over and over again. So, This is another way of responding to violence. And it's such a wonderful alternative to give to boys and young men because these boys demonstrated so many warrior virtues, courage, solidarity, perseverance, faithfulness to the end. You know, this could be a a commercial for the Marines, right? Um, But they did that out of love for one another, not by showing their aggression. And uh, one of the the things that they talk about is there's a dance, a warrior's dance that they performed. um, That was one of the traditional dances they were taught. The term in Kirundi is intore. So the intore dance or the warrior's dance, which is a very athletic dance, very demanding, but also very beautiful. Um, so, and the boys move together in a line in this dance. They're wearing warrior costumes. They're armed. They might have a shield and a spear or even two spears. And, um, they also leap and kind of undulate in the air, um, because they're miming, dodging arrows and spears and in the current context, bullets and grenades which makes it very beautiful and fluid. And they advance together and they retreat together. So it's a dance that is choreographing battle, but it is a dance and not a fight. 
Um, and there is a suppleness that is also being shown in this dance, as well as uh, strength and bravura. Um, and, and traditionally, inhore dancers would accompany warriors to the front um, and give them courage by their dancing. The term inhore in Kirundi has come to mean a person who exemplifies masculine virtues, who is very good at bringing people together, who's a good leader, um, who's very sociable, uh, and who can mobilize people around what is good and right and true, and who has the courage uh, to offer himself in defense of the king. Burundi was a kingdom. Um, so you can see how this can be translated into Christian terms, of people who are willing to die for the Prince of Life and um, and offer themselves for the King of Glory. And this dance is often danced liturgically uh, right after the Eucharist and the Thanksgiving. Um, and there'll be liturgical dancers who are in costume, usually boys, dancing it, but the congregation gets up and dances with them. And at the 20th anniversary commemoration, everybody got up and one of the priests who's been there at the time who everybody says confessed all the martyrs the night before they died, he went out into the middle area onto the grassy place with the liturgical dancers and began dancing. And one of the uh, men on staff who had been in the dorms, a kind of dorm dad, came up and joined him. And everybody else was dancing in their place, this warrior's dance, uh, to honor the martyrs. And this sense of what it means to be a real man is somebody who brings people together, someone who is graceful, someone whose courage is used to honor God and the Prince of Peace and the King of Glory. I think this is a deep teaching in them. One of the survivors, I started asking him about the Intore dance, and he said, oh, I was in the Intore group at the seminary. And... He said, that dance, that's such an amazing dance. He said, that dance really shaped me, right? It's interesting to me that I would not talk about a dance having shaped me. I might say a book I had read or a course I took. But he said, that's a dance that really shaped me because an inhore is a sociable person. He's a real leader. And, and I said, you know, I noticed you got up and started dancing. And um, why did you do that at the 20th anniversary? And he said, you know, I was shot in the lower back, I was shot in the knee, I got shrapnel from the grenade in my back. But I can still use the members of the body that God gave me. And he stopped and he said, we danced that dance when we were 20. And ah, 20 years later, we had to get up and dance it again. So I think one of the things I am centrally focused on in my own research is that Yes, this is a glorious Christian testimony and all praise and honor to the church and the families for what they have taught the boys. But it's also a testimony to deeply rooted Burundian cultural values and practices like this dance, that they are testifying to their culture. One of the things Francis says in Fratelli Tutti is that a culture that is rooted in the substratum of its own values is a gift to the whole world. And I feel this is what's emerging with the martyrs of fraternity, that they are a gift to the whole world. 
And Burundians themselves understand that they are taking their place in Christian history through these boys. With the best of Burundian culture being taken up into the global body of Christ and joined to those values and those those practices of the faith that disarm the world, that, that return evil with good and, 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 and so on, but precisely raising up the best of every culture. Exactly. And I think, you know, this is a testimony of enculturated African Catholicism and why Zachary Bukuru and his team were, were doing at Buta was enculturating it. And um, it is also, yes, it, it is an offering to the world beyond the Catholicism part of it, but the specificity of the Burundianness of it is really important. Um, there's a Congolese historian, Jacques de Pelchin, who has said that ethics are alive and well in Africa. He said maybe even especially in the places that seem to have gone most astray, like Rwanda and Burundi. And in fact, I think as Burundi works through its trauma and its legacies, its colonial legacies, its post-colonial legacies of violence, it is um, clearing paths and uh, developing mechanisms or drawing on its long-standing culture in ways that are useful for the whole world in transforming conflict and finding ways that we can all be one. Umuvukano, we are one. We are one family. Um, and we exclude no one from this family. We may be disappointed in members of our family at various times, and we may ourselves disappoint, but we do not exclude. We carry people forward. You know, the survivors in those first couple of years They've said to me, you know, there were a couple of guys, one in particular, who really held us back in terms of what we wanted to do. But they never abandoned those people. They kept discussing. And these are still boys and young men at that point until they could bring everybody with them. This is one of the things I've experienced. I've lived in Burundi for 11 years now. I've lived in Kenya for three years in South Africa for two years. So I am generalizing a bit, but I would say I've noticed in these African societies, they are very loath to leave people behind. You know, we have had that as a political slogan in the U.S., um, speciously, I believe. But there's something very deep in the African cultures that I've been able to live alongside of about not leaving people behind, that we move forward together or not at all. And I think that's what the survivors did in their organization. I think this is what Francis is calling for um, with the, a vision of, uh, of social friendship that excludes no one. I think Africans are great teachers for us in this. Um, and I think the Burundians themselves are humbled at the way the boys, they always refer to them as the boys, the children, um, what they taught them, that they became the teachers of the nation um, and produce this glorious testimony uh, in a way that no one can deny because it's sealed in their blood, the blood of those who died and the blood of the living who, who continue 
to live with the frictions of doing, you know, things in community that we all know if you're involved in a movement or an organization that's trying to work for nonviolent social change, you know, there are disagreements, there are frustrations, but we need to stay together and move forward. And a young child shall leave them. Yes. Um, before we go, people interested in learning more about the Buddha experience, people interested in contacting you or following your work, how would they, how would they best do those things? Um, so I, the Journal of Global Catholicism is a free online journal. You can read the article that I published there. I gave about a 45-minute lecture at Holy Cross, uh, College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts in March. And that is also online. So you can go to Crossworks at Holy Cross and find it through there. That's my own work. But more importantly, I would really turn people towards Zachary Bukuru's book. In English, the title is We Are All Children of God. It's published by Pauline's Africa. Um, and I, one of my great hopes and dreams for uh, Light of the World, Buddha as an association, is for them to develop their online presence and have a website and begin to keep the world apprised of the many good things that they are doing. So I hope that that may also become. Very good. Professor, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Near and Far is produced by the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology, a research institute focused on Catholicism around the world with special attention to the church in the global south. The center is sponsored by DePaul University, a Catholic university in the Vincentian tradition in Chicago. Production assistance for Near and Far comes from Marlon Aguilar, Finnegan Chu, and Karen Kraft. For more information on the center and its activities, look for the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology on the web, Facebook, Twitter, Vimeo, and YouTube.